Well, today we begin chapter 5 of the Gospel of John. And what Jesus is going to do in this chapter is he's going to perform a miracle up front. And he's going to use that miracle, as he does with all the miracles, to reveal his essence. But what he's going to do in chapter 5 is he's going to move events in a fashion to reveal his deity. Remember, in the Gospels, Jesus is always in complete control. Never, never, never accept this Hollywood image that Jesus is this kind of helpless, hapless man who's just kind of abused by the leaders in Israel. It's true he was crucified and brutalized, but through the whole event, he's in complete control. Before he ever makes it to Jerusalem and they try him, and wrongly convict him and crucify him. He's in control. He's in control as to what miracles he does. He's in control as to what events happen which cause certain responses from certain people which then triggers a chain reaction and creates responses from the religious leaders. He's moving the pieces on the chessboard methodically, consistently, like the master chess player. This is what we're going to see today through this miracle that he will use to reveal his personhood. Let's get right to it. Chapter 5, verse 1 begins like this. After these things, there was a feast. There was a feast of the Jews, and, the Jew, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. <clears throat> Excuse me, the things that are referenced here are the things that we've been seeing so far. Right? John chapter 4, where Jesus ministers in Samaria to the Samaritans at the city of Sychar. First to the, women, to the woman at the well, and then to the people of Sychar. And then Jesus heads north to Galilee, and he ministers to the royal official, the king's official, by healing his son. These are the things that John's talking about when he says, after these things. He says there's a feast in Jerusalem. What Jesus is doing is he's going from north to south, right? He started here in Jerusalem in John chapter 2 and John chapter 3. Then he goes north and stops in Samaria. Then he goes farther north up to Galilee, to Cana, which is where he heals the, the royal official's son. The royal official's son is, in, is, is ill in Capernaum. Now Jesus has made his way back down to Jerusalem for this feast, a feast that John doesn't tell us what it is. Normally, John gives us the name of the feast, like in John chapter 2, he will say the feast of the Passover, or John chapter 7, the feast of tabernacles, John chapter 11, the feast of dedication. But this time, John doesn't tell us what feast it is. So we're going to move on, right? Sometimes the scripture is silent about a topic, and theologians or commentators feel the obligation to, to spill a bunch of ink and do a bunch of brain damage of, well, what is that feast? I don't know, because the text doesn't tell us. The text doesn't tell us because it's not relevant to what's going to happen here in John chapter 5. So Jesus is there for an unnamed feast. Then we get to verse 2. Now there, is, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, 
which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. Here's a diagram of Jerusalem. We, that's kind of a special thing that we added, just we thought it'd be neat technology there. Just kidding. Just kind of. <laughs> so, so here's the temple, and the Pool of Bethesda is just to the north of the temple, very close, walking distance to the temple. It's probably fed by some nearby springs, and right next to it, the wall of Jerusalem is kind of here, in this area. And so in the wall of Jerusalem, there's the Sheep Gate, built by Nehemiah. When Nehemiah, in, in uh, Nehemiah chapter 3, when they came back from the Babylonian exile, Nehemiah is, builds the wall, because you can't have a city in ancient times without a wall. First thing they did was build the wall, Nehemiah builds the wall. And here he builds the Sheep Gate, right in this area, so that sheep can come into the temple area, and be sacrificed. This is kind of the, the, the layout of what we're seeing in John chapter 5, verse 2. And then you have the Pool of Bethesda. The Pool of Bethesda is described as having five porticos. A portico is kind of this area here. Maybe this is the better view. You have these columns. It's like a colonnade. colonnade. You have these columns, and you see, you see like little doors here. So people, this is a patio that has columns, and it goes in all the directions, there were five porticos that are described here. And, and so the, the portico, think of it as a porch, but with these beautiful majestic columns. Here are the five. One, two, three, four, and then one in the middle, five. In each of these, there's water. It's kind of a, a twin pool or a double pool of Bethesda. That's that's the, the picture here that John is describing. His Jewish readers would have said, yeah, no problem. I got an image of that in my mind. But for us, we kind of have to use some, um, some pictures of kind of what that would have looked like. And so that's a, what's, what's on the screen there. It's not an actual photograph, of course, but it's a, it's a model of what the Pool of Bethesda looked like. Then keep reading in verse 3. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. What's happening here is those who are crippled, those who are seriously ill, they would come to this area and they would sit. They would, they would be in these porticos, standing here on these porches, and they're waiting for something. They're waiting for what's going to happen in the water. And so John is describing here people who are sick, who are waiting and hoping for a chance to get well. He uses the word withered. It's the Greek word seros, which means shrunken or withered because of disease. So like you can have a withered hand. Jesus will heal a man with a withered hand. You could have a withered body. In other words, you could be paralyzed, as we'll see in a moment. Keep reading in verse 3. Waiting for the moving of the waters. So I'll, I'll read all of verse 3. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. And then we get to the last half of verse 3. Waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. 
If you're reading from an NASB, that language will be in brackets, and there'll be a note that says the oldest and best manuscripts don't have that language. Don't have the text from the, from the last half of verse 3 through all of verse 4. The oldest manuscripts, which are usually the best manuscripts, they don't have that language. Most Bibles leave this language out. The NET, the NIV, the ESV, the LEB, the Lexham English Bible, they don't have that language. Instead, they put it in a footnote. They put the language in a footnote, and they say the oldest manuscripts don't have this language, and they stick it in a footnote. NASB 1995, which is what I'm reading from, from the year 1995, when they published it, has it in the text, and then they stick a footnote that says oldest manuscripts don't have it. NASB that was published in the year 2020 flips it and does it like those other Bibles that I just described. They don't put it in the body, and they, they, they put it all in a footnote. They put the text, and they put the note about how the oldest manuscripts don't have it. I think the New King James has the text and doesn't put a footnote. Why does this matter? It matters because it appears. You, you always want to look at the oldest. When, when, when the Bible translators are translating the Bible, you have different translation, translating committees, different Greek scholars and Hebrew scholars who are doing the translations one group for the NASB, another group for the NIV, another group for the NET, and sometimes there's some overlap. But they don't go and get one transcript, one manuscript of the Gospel of John. They get multiple manuscripts because, as, as, you, as I mentioned before, we really have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the amount of manuscripts that we have for the Bible. You know, Homer's Iliad, some of the ancient writings... They have very few manuscripts, but the Bible has an incredible amount of manuscripts. And if the Bible is not adequately attested, then no ancient work, Homer's Iliad, the, the Odyssey, none of them are adequately attested. If the Bible's not, because the Bible has exponentially more manuscripts. But what I'm trying to say is, when you're when you get a, a, the translation of your Bible, what the translators have done is they've taken multiple manuscripts and they've compared them. And what, they, what you typically do is you give more weight to the older manuscript, the manuscript that's closer in time to, when, to the autograph when it was first written. The manuscript from the 2nd century has more weight, is more persuasive than a manuscript from the 6th century, in other words. So some people have studied this, and they've analyzed that for the first 400 years of the church, or let's say through 399, no manuscript had this text in it. And the text doesn't show up until manuscripts that are after the 400 time period. Well, if that's the case, then we have an issue. We have an issue of, is this, was this really part of the original I don't think it was part of the original. I think what it is is it's something that a scribe added, and it's something that is a way to reflect a popular belief of what was happening there with this pool in terms of the water getting stirred up and people getting healed. As we'll see as these verses unfold, it will appear that the waters do have some sort of medicinal benefit. They do have some sort of medicinal benefit purpose and value. 
and the waters will get stirred up. But that may be simply because that was the nature of the spring that was feeding the water, that was feeding these pools. In other words, it had a high mineral content, and the minerals provided some medicinal benefit. And sometimes there's pressure in a spring, and when the pressure releases, it releases more of the, of the water and therefore more of the minerals. When the, when the pressure um, is, uh, goes the other direction, then it, it subsides. That may be what's happening here. I think that's probably a much better understanding than a superstitious belief that an angel came down and stuck his finger in the water, and then it's a mad dash scramble to get to the water while it's still agitated. I think there's kind of this, this superstitious belief that some scribe added to this centuries after, after the text was originally written, and that's why you have these different translations that are very cautious about this text. We're not going to spend any time analyzing the text because I don't think it was in the, in the original. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. That's a long period to carry an illness around. We don't know exactly what his illness was other than he's paralyzed, and we'll see that as these verses continue to unfold. Verse 6 reads like this, When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? Jesus chooses this man out of the crowd of disabled people. Right? This, these, these porticos are full of people full of disabled people, full of people who are ill, and Jesus comes along and says, you, do you want to get better? If you're honest, you say, that seems like an odd question, Jesus. Right? It seems like an odd question for Jesus to ask. We don't know why Jesus selected this person other than the person had been lying there a long time. He's clearly in a hopeless condition, and... It seems like an odd question that Jesus is, answering, is asking him, but when you consider that the man's been paralyzed for almost four decades, he's been coming to the pool of Bethesda hoping to get healed because, you know, they're not going to a doctor. They're not going to, to, to get an MRI or a CAT scan or to get this prescription filled at the pharmacy or that prescription filled. People have heard that there's some medicinal benefit in these pools, in the water from the spring, so let's show up there and maybe it'll help. This man's been showing up at the pool for who knows how many years, yet any hope of getting well seems to be fading with the man. Maybe what Jesus is doing is refocusing his mind on the possibility of hope. Keep reading. Verse 7 says this, The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool. When the water stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Notice that the man doesn't answer Jesus' question. Right, Jesus said, Would you like to get well? The man doesn't really answer that question. You'd think he'd say, Absolutely, I'd love to get well. That's not the response he gives. Instead, he talks about the pool, he talks about how he can't get access to the water quick enough. People cut in line in front of me. When I start making my way, I start making my move to the water because the water's agitated. It's being stirred up. Someone cuts in front of me. 
Here's the reason why he doesn't answer Jesus' question, I believe. It's because he's not thinking that Jesus could or would heal him. This man's confidence is not in Jesus. His confidence is in the water. And so he wants someone to get him access to the water. His confidence is in the pool, and every time the water subsides, his hope sinks. Every time. Keep reading, verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Pallet is an old English word. Don't think of that, you know, a platform with wood on it that they store things and transport things on. Pallet is an old English word that means a makeshift mattress. Think of a Pilates mat that's a little bigger. Kind of a souped up Pilates mat. Verse 9. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. The Lagos speaks, and the dead live. The Word of God speaks. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. <clears throat> Excuse me, and the Word was God. The Word of God, that's a reference to Jesus, speaks, and the dead live. The dead tendons, the dead ligaments, the dead muscles immediately live. We'll see this in more detail as we go through chapter 5 as chapter 5 unfolds. But look what Jesus says in John 5, 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. The Word of God is alive and powerful and unstoppable. Jesus says it, and it happens. John is showing that Jesus is God. That's what this miracle shows that Jesus does when He heals the lame man. Because it's right out of the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't just come in willy-nilly and say, you know what, I'm going to turn that tree into a giraffe, and then I'm going to turn that rock into a, 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 a cake of figs. I mean, you ever wonder why Jesus did the miracles that He did? He doesn't just randomly approach things and say, I'm going to give these guys a show here, I'm going to do something that's spectacular. No, He methodically, carefully, selects miracles. Why? Because he's moving the pieces on the chessboard consistently. He's in absolute control. By the end, by the end of his life, when he hangs on the cross, it will have been checkmate that he will have done checkmate on the devil. We're not there yet. Right now, Jesus is moving the pieces on the chessboard, and so he does miracles to communicate who he is, to reveal his person. Isaiah chapter 35 Verse 2 reads like this, They will see the glory of Yahweh, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage. Take courage. I love that. Take courage in the face of adversity. Take courage in the face of illness. Take courage. Fear not. Behold, your God comes with vengeance, but He will save you. Verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind, here we go, the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. The reason why Jesus healed the blind and healed the lame and the deaf and the mute is because he was communicating, I'm God. I do the things of God as a man. I do the things of God. I do the things that the Hebrew Scriptures prophesied, not that a man would do, but that God would do. That's what I do, Israel. This is what Jesus is communicating through His 
miracles. He is evidencing his Messiahship, which is to say he is evidencing that he is fully God, fully man. Remember when John the Baptist sends his delegation to Jesus, asking Jesus, are you the Christ? What does Jesus respond? He responds with these words, Matthew 11, verse 2. Now when John, that's John the Baptist, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples, by John's disciples, and said to him, to Jesus, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. Now Jesus is going to quote the slide that was just on the screen. Isaiah 35. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. I say again, the miracles of Jesus he selected with extreme precision to reveal, to display his Messiahship, which is to say his deity and his, they already saw his humanity, but he was displaying that he was fully God, fully man. The miracle in John chapter 4 where Jesus heals the royal son's official What does that display? That displays Jesus' power over space. Over space. That's that's something that only God has. Jesus speaks the word, and 20 miles away, the word happens. Not because somebody, some messenger, ran 20 miles to do it. Jesus spoke the word in Cana of Galilee to the royal official, your son lives. And in that instant... The royal official finds out the next day when he meets with his servants. The servants explain, oh yeah, yesterday at 7 p.m. And the royal official remembers, that's when I was talking with Jesus. That's when Jesus said my son was healed. Jesus spoke and 20 miles away, his will is executed. Not with any intermediary agents executing the will. He just did it. So the miracle that we saw in John chapter 4 is Jesus revealing that his power is limitless with respect to space. The miracle that we're seeing in John chapter 5 is that his power is limitless with respect to time. Right? What does he do with the dead muscles and the dead tendons and the dead ligaments? He makes them good immediately. That's not the way healing works. Right? You go injure yourself. Go break your leg. Well, I'm not saying that will break your leg, but you know, you're playing and you go break your leg. You're running, you go break your leg. What happens? It's going to take months to heal. Jesus accelerates it all with a word. Get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And the boy walks. The man walks. The paralytic who's been paralyzed for 38 years. There's no time that's needed to heal the muscles and the, and the tendons and the ligaments. This miracle in John chapter 5 is showing that Jesus' power over time is limitless the fact that the man immediately picks up his mat and walks evidences the immediate and complete healing keep reading in john chapter 5 verse 9 we read at the end of the verse now it was the sabbath on that day row row uh-oh it's the sabbath you're not supposed to be doing that kind of stuff jesus on the sabbath no 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 the Pharisees would say. Jesus picks the Sabbath because, as as, as I mentioned, Jesus is in complete control. 
Your God is sovereign. Jesus is not some weak, namby-pamby, milk-toast guy. Jesus is in complete control. He picks the Sabbath intentionally to do the miracle on the Sabbath so that he can communicate who he is. First, he has communicated through his works that he is God. Now he's going to communicate through his words that he is God. He's going to draw out the religious leaders. He's going to pull them out. He's giving them the bait, and they're going to take it. Look at verse 10. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. So there. This reference to Jews, when John uses the term Jews, he means the Jewish religious leaders who were opposed to Jesus. That's who he's talking about here. The Pharisees, it's the Sanhedrin. Remember, the Sanhedrin is the governing body. They don't have... You know, they don't have a legislative branch, an executive branch, a judicial branch, you know, a president, a Supreme Court, and courts underneath it, and, and legislatures. It's all packed together. It's all squished together in the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin have the Pharisees, and they have the Sadducees. They have different parties, religious slash political parties, within the Sanhedrin. John is saying the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, that's kind of redundant because their leaders were all religious in one way or another. John is saying that the Jewish religious leaders are making this comment to the man who was paralyzed for 38 years and now he walks. Their comment is, why are you carrying your pallet on the Sabbath? Their comment isn't, wow, you now walk. Praise God for that. I bet this is, this is joyous, joyous for you, Mr paralyzed person for almost 40 years you're not show me that one more time you walk a little more for me there's none of that there's this kind of sour puss because that's the way the the legalist always is that's the way the prideful guy always is he's always got the sour puss look about the sour puss words words that come out this kind of sour puss words why are you carrying your pallet why are you carrying it's the sabbath you see the religious leaders don't care about the well-being of the people. They care about their traditions. They care about their rules. They don't share in the joy of this former layman who was suffering, hopeless, and now he walks. They're more interested in their tradition. The Mosaic Law provided a capital offense. It's the death penalty if you don't follow Sabbath observance. That's the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verses 9 through 11. You are to honor the Sabbath. But we need to be clear what the Sabbath was and what the Sabbath was not. The Sabbath was designed as a day of worship and a day of rest. Everyone was excused from work. No one had to work, and in fact, everyone was required not to work. No one was allowed to earn a living, in other words. You can't carry the, 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 the lumber. You're, you're a carpenter? No, don't be carrying the lumber to go make a chair. Don't be carrying the rocks. Don't be carrying the grapes because you just harvested them on Friday. Remember, Sabbath is on the Saturday. You harvested the grapes on 
Friday, no, you can't carry them to, 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 to take them to the press on Saturday. Because Saturday's the day of rest. You have to trust in the Lord on Saturday. You can pick them up on Sunday and go take them to the, to the wine press. You can pick up that lumber on Sunday and go work on your, on your chair that you're a carpenter, you know, that you're making. My point is this. The purpose of the Sabbath was so that you did not do your employment so that you did not earn a living on the Sabbath, on Saturday, on that day. You had to trust God that He would provide on the seventh day. That was the seventh day of their week. This was a gift. It was a gracious gift from God. That's what the Sabbath was. The entire law was, for that matter. But the Jewish religious leaders turned the gift into a burden into this burdensome prison, this burdensome duty. In their religious zeal, the religious officials created interpretations. We're going to do 39 interpretations of exactly what work is. And in those 39, we have the list of prohibited work. And in the list of 39 is included transporting, carrying anything from there to there. Carrying anything from one location to another. That was in the list of prohibited things, and so you would subject yourself potentially to capital punishment for carrying one thing to another. That wasn't the intent of Sabbath. The intent of Sabbath was for you not to be earning a living on the seventh day and to rest in God and to trust in God to provide for you on that day. It was was a day of worship, So the religious leaders took their man-made traditions and they went beyond the intent of Sabbath. Jesus tells this paralytic, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. You know what Jesus was saying? Every time you walk around with that Pilates mat, kind of souped up Pilates mat on your shoulder, that's that's a walking sign of the grace of God. That's a walking sign of worship. That is a walking symbol of the deity of Christ. Because people are going to see you and say, what happened to you? You're the guy that we've seen, that my parents saw, that I saw, for the last 40 years, crawling on your hands, dragging your legs because you can't walk, and waiting hopelessly at the portico, at the pool of Bethesda. What in the world happened to you? You're carrying your pallet, and you're walking So the man's going to say, somebody heal me. Now, right now, he doesn't even know Jesus' name. He'll know Jesus' name in a moment. But by Jesus telling the man to carry his pallet, it's communicating something to everybody who sees this former cripple that something supernatural has happened from someone who is outside of this cripple, from someone who is, by his very nature, supernatural. Instead of celebrating the miracle of God, the Jewish religious leaders put him at risk at capital, for capital punishment by accusing him of violating a very serious part of the Mosaic law. This man was not violating the Sabbath. He was violating their traditions, but not the Sabbath itself. Keep reading. In John chapter 5, verse 11, we see this. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. The the religious leaders want to know, who told you to do this? 
Verse 12, they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. The Jewish religious leaders want to know who's the accomplice. Who is the one who has encouraged you to engage in this crime of violating the Sabbath? What they really mean is this crime of violating our tradition that we've imposed on the Sabbath. Of course, they wouldn't say it that way. But that's what they really mean. The religious leaders don't care about the well-being of this man, and they don't care that there is a man, capital M, in their midst who has the ability to make the dead live, at least this half this man's body was dead. The religious leaders aren't interested in that. They're not asking the man who's been healed, who gave you this order, so that they can find out about and investigate the man who gave this order. They're asking the gentleman who's been healed, who is the man who gave you this order, who healed you, because they want to hold him accountable for Sabbath violation. But the former paralytic couldn't answer their question because he didn't know. He didn't know the, man, the name of the man who healed him. Jesus comes in, sees this crowd of people who are ill at the pool of Bethesda. He selects one. He selects that man who's paralyzed. He says, you want to get well? And the man says, well, I can't get in the water. And when I make the... Uh, Jesus says, get up. Pick up your pallet and Walk. And then Jesus slides off into the crowd. He just fades into the crowd. And the man says, well, I'm walking now, and I got my back. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going. Jesus, it doesn't say why Jesus faded into the crowd. Probably because there's this huge amount of people who, if they see Jesus heal that guy, they're going to be on Jesus like glue. And Jesus would create this kind of frenzy there. Jesus didn't come to heal everybody. Let me say that again. Jesus did not come to heal everybody's physical ailment or these various people who are demon-possessed. He didn't come to heal everybody. He came to offer salvation to everybody. And He uses His miracles to evidence who He is, to evidence the nature and person of Himself. Keep reading, verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found Kim in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. Jesus seeks him out and finds him in the temple and says, Don't sin anymore, so you don't get paralyzed again. I mean, isn't that what he's saying? Jesus is indicating that the reason he was paralyzed for almost 40 years is because of some sin in the life. Now, in John chapter 9, when the disciples will say, there's a blind man, who sinned? Did he sin or did his parents sin? Jesus is going to say, neither one. But he was born blind for the glory of God, and then Jesus is going to heal that man. So we need to be careful here. It is true. It is a truth of the Scripture that God, one of the, one of the, the tools that God uses to discipline, to punish, is illness. I mean, 1 Corinthians 11, when the Corinthians are getting drunk and gorging themselves on food, and then they participate in the communion service drunk, Paul says, some of you sleep and are ill as punishment. Sleep is a nice way of saying some of you have died. So there's no question 
that the Scriptures have the revelation that God uses illness as a source of punishment. Or 1 John 5, 16, there's a sin unto death, which can come in all kinds of different ways. Jesus is saying here, this man, when when he's addressing this man, he says, don't sin anymore. Don't be engaging in this particular sin. And he's saying it could be much worse. There are worse things than being paralyzed for 40 years. I mean, that doesn't sound very good, being paralyzed for 40 years, but there are worse things than that. We need to be very careful with this subject matter. Don't walk up to somebody and say, you've got cancer, you've got diabetes, you've got this illness because God is punishing you. Talk about a cruel thing to say and an ignorant thing to say. You don't know if God is using a disease to punish someone or not. That's between that person and the Lord. What we see here is God can use disease to punish. Or John chapter 9, God, in that case, wasn't using disease to punish. We need to be very careful with this subject matter. But in this case, Jesus says, don't sin again. Don't be doing whatever sin it was because that's what got you in this condition in the first place and it'll be worse for you next time. Keep reading verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. That's not a good look. That's not a good look. You see what happened? The Pharisees, the Jewish leaders come to Jesus excuse me, come to the man who's, who's healed, and they say, you're not supposed to be carrying your pallet on the Sabbath. And the man says, well, the guy who healed me told me to do it, and so I just assume he had authority. I don't, and they say, who was it? And he says, I don't know. Then Jesus finds him in the temple, and the man learns, oh, that's Jesus, that's your name, that's the person who healed me. So then he makes his way back to the religious leaders. It was Jesus who healed me. It was Jesus who told me carry my pallet. It's like he is protecting himself and he's trying to cover himself so that the Pharisees will direct their scorn and their wrath to Jesus instead of him because it's serious to be violating the Sabbath or it's really violating the traditions of the Pharisees with respect to the Sabbath. But what's happening is this man is redirecting the Pharisees and the religious leaders back to Jesus, I think this is ingratitude. I mean, it's difficult to say that this is a grateful man for the the healing. And by the way, we don't find anywhere in the text that he trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of his sins, that, that, that he believed in Christ for salvation. We don't find that anywhere. I don't know if he's saved or not, but I think this is very odd that he would make his way back to the Pharisees and say, that's who it was. It was Jesus. It's odd when I read it, but then when I remember, and as these verses continue, you'll see this is Jesus' plan in the first place. Jesus is moving the pieces. Jesus selected a man who would make his way back to the Pharisees to tell them that it was Jesus, because Jesus wants the Pharisees to know that he healed them on the Sabbath, and that Jesus told him to carry his, his pallet on the Sabbath. Keep reading verse 16. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things 
on the Sabbath, the religious leaders, they're not concerned about the paralytic anymore. They've got the sight of their rifle on Jesus. Their antagonism is now focused on Jesus. This is the first time in the book of John that we see hostility towards Jesus. The word here for persecute is the Greek word dioko, which means to persecute or harass. And verse 18 will explain that the persecution was so intense that they sought to kill Jesus. For what? What were the things? Look at this phrase. The things on the Sabbath. What were the things that Jesus was doing on the Sabbath? You see that phrase there in in verse 16? He had the audacity to heal someone on the Sabbath. That was the offense, that he healed the lame on the Sabbath. Of course, this was not a violation of the Sabbath. This was a violation of the traditions of the religious leaders. And you know how concerned Jesus was about their tradition? He heals on the Sabbath over and over and over and over and over. Five times he heals on the Sabbath. Let me communicate to you how important your traditions are to me, Jesus says. In Mark 3, he healed a man with a withered hand. In Luke 13, he healed a sick woman whose back had been been bent over for 18 years. In Luke 14, he healed a man with dropsy. In John 5, our passage, he healed the paralytic. In John 9, he healed a blind man all on the Sabbath because Jesus is making a point, because Jesus is in complete control of all the events. He's drawing out the hypocrites. This is really why the Pharisees, ultimately the reason why the Pharisees despise Jesus and want him dead is not because he does something on the Sabbath. It's because he exposes them as the hypocrites and the cruel, the cruel legalists, prideful legalists that they are. Their traditions were about religious power, not the well-being of the people. The people love the idea of healings. Sabbath, not Sabbath, whatever, heal. The people love it, not the religious leaders. And so Jesus makes it a point to heal on the Sabbath to expose the pridefulness of the religious leaders who would turn the Sabbath into a burdensome duty instead of a gracious gift from God. In their pride, they use their traditions to lord their power over the people. And Jesus is exposing that to the people. In verse 17, we see Jesus' defense to their accusations. Jesus' response to their accusation of Sabbath violation. Look at verse 17. But he answered them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. You see, Jesus could have said, he could have given us his defense. Look, you're accusing me of something that is not in the law. You're accusing me of violating your traditions, which are made up. They're man-made traditions. That's not in the law. The law says, follow the Sabbath. The Sabbath observance is about not being not doing things that are associated with your employment, not earning a living on the seventh day. It's not about these traditions that you've imposed. That could have been Jesus' response, but it wasn't. He doesn't defend himself on the thing that, you know, most lawyers would, lawyers would say, well, that's obvious. Give him that defense. Give him the obvious defense. That's the obvious defense. 
Jesus doesn't give them the obvious defense when they accuse him of violating the Sabbath. No. He takes the opportunity to give them the dangerous defense. The defense that will make them want to kill him. That's not his objective. His objective is to display his deity. Now, ultimately, he knows that he's going to go to the cross, to be sure. But what he's doing here is he is giving them a defense to their accusation that he's violating the Sabbath. His response to their accusation is, I'm God. I do what God does. Now, God rested on the Sabbath, right? I mean, Genesis 2. The Pharisees would have acknowledged that God works all the time. I mean, Jesus says God's working until now. In other words, He works all the time. He works six days a week. He works on the seventh day. He works every day. It's true, He rested on the Sabbath. He rested from His creative work, creating the universe on the seventh day, Genesis 2. He rested not because he's tired. He's omnipotent. He doesn't get tired. He rested because his work was complete. But even on the seventh day, he's working. He's working to keep the earth spinning on its rotation. He's working to keep the planets in their course. He's working to keep the rivers flowing. He's working to keep the heart of Adam pumping, right? Because he maintains it with a word. So God's always working, and the Pharisees would have, would have agreed with Jesus that God is not limited by the Sabbath, that God works even on the Sabbath. They would have agreed with that. But then Jesus takes his defense one step further, the step that they trip on, the step that they will choke on. He says, God works on the Sabbath. That's why I work on the Sabbath. He says, God is not limited by the Sabbath, not bound by the Sabbath. That's why I'm not bound by the Sabbath. You understand what he's doing? You understand his argument? He's saying, I'm equal with God. It's permissible for God to work on the Sabbath, and therefore it's permissible for me to work on the Sabbath. I work when God works. God always works. So do I. God is not limited by the Sabbath, nor am I. And by the way, God is my Father, which is to say, I am of the same order as God, the same nature, the same essence, and they understand exactly what he's saying. That's why in the next verse they want to kill him. Right? Verse 18. Look at verse 18. They want to kill him because he makes himself equal with God. They want to kill him because he, they believe he violates the Sabbath, but also because he makes himself equal with God. They understand Jesus' claim. When those nice people come to the door and tell you that Jesus never said he was God, they're not really nice. They're trying to deceive you. I'm talking about the Jehovah's Witnesses. And they say Jesus never claimed to be God. Take out John 5. The Pharisees understood his claim to be God. That's why in verse 18, they want to kill him. Because they don't believe it. If they believed it, they would have fallen down on their faces and groveled before him and worshipped. But because they don't believe it, they want to kill him and they accuse him of blasphemy. Jesus is in complete control. And he uses this miracle to display his deity. The religious leaders are being exposed by Jesus' miracle. The whole point of the miracle was to reveal that Jesus is God. He did it through his work of doing that which Isaiah prophesied to heal the lame. Doing that which God, Isaiah prophesied God would come and do. Jesus 
displays his deity by healing the lame, consistent with Isaiah 35. Then he displays his deity through his words by explaining that he and the Father are equal. If you're here today and you don't know the deity of Christ, you don't know Jesus, we want you to know that Jesus is fully God, fully man, and that Jesus loves you. If you're here today without Christ, without hope, and without eternal life, you may be in that condition today. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait for tomorrow because you don't have a guarantee on tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. You are the enemy of God, the Scripture says. The Scripture doesn't suck up to you and, and whisper sweet nothings into your ear. The Scripture is brutally honest because God loves you, and so He's honest. He is honest in declaring you to be His enemy. He is opposed to God, not a soft, squishy opposition, but a warfare opposition. You are on the death train, on your way to eternal condemnation, to spend eternity in the place that Jesus described as the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, the place that is described at the end of Revelation 20 as the lake of fire. That is where you are going if you refuse to accept Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life. It is that easy. You say, that's too easy for me. That doesn't seem right that it's so easy to become saved, to go to heaven versus hell. You're right. I might have made it more difficult if I were God, but of course I'm not. God, because He loves you, He makes it so easy, painful for Him. He gave everything. God, in the flesh, as a man, gave everything. He gave His life for you, because he loves you. But there is a reckoning. God is a God of mercy and grace and compassion. He heals the lame. He heals the blind. He heals the mute. He heals the deaf. God in the flesh does all that because he is a God of love, boundless love. But make no mistake, he is also a God of wrath and judgment. That's just what the scriptures say. And I would be lying to you if I only portrayed to you a Jesus who is the Lamb, he is also portrayed in the Scripture as the Lion. Meek and mild to be sure, but ferocious, full of judgment for those who are his enemies. So all you need to do is trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life. And in that instant, you become the child of God. I'm available afterwards if you'd like to visit about it. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We praise you because you are an awesome God. We fear you. We come to you with reverential awe. Break us from our rebellion. Break us from our boredom. Break us from our desire to wander from you. Help us obey you. Help us approach you in wonder and awe. Help us be amazed at what you have done through your Son for us that we may be called your children. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what your son did. And we also ask that you give us mercy, give us grace. Specifically, we ask for rain, Father, because we are in so much need for it. You knew it from eternity past. We ask that you give it to us, that our crops may grow, and that the, the ranchers and the, the, that the soil may, may thrive again, and that the wildfires may be at bay. 
we make this prayer appealing to your mercy and to your grace. We make this prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.